Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Listening Room. Listen to what the flower people say. So as you may have noticed, this month I've been trying to branch out into a bunch of different genres with each episode. First we took a look at some acoustic folk kind of country tinge stuff with Dustin Kenstrew, and then we moved on to synth pop with Churches. And now we're going to a genre in which I own a lot of music. A genre affectionately called emo. Now, I had a hard time deciding on which album I was going to do. There were, there were a handful of different albums, but ultimately I decided on Clarity by Jimmy Eat World. And the reason I did is because I think it comes at a point in music history where emo changed. The term emo has never really been very specific. In fact, most people think that emo just means emotional, so you're listening to emotional music, but that's not true, because all music, I think, is inherently emotional. Well, yeah, you say, but it's not about mopey teenagers whining about their girlfriends. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's a given. There's a lot of bad music that's peddled as emo. But in its original form, emo, it didn't mean emotional, it meant emotive hardcore. So it was more of an emotive brand of hardcore music. If we take a look back around the 70s, we see that there's a punk movement that comes out of a resistance of what's going on in the landscape of heavy rock music. So you have heavy metal coming out, which is highly technical, and there's a couple different branches. You know, there's the prog branch that I enjoy a lot, but I definitely see where people would not gravitate towards that. Um, And then heavy metal in general was so technical and so almost elitist because you needed to have some very good musicians in order to play that type of music. Well, out from that and directly in contradiction to that came the punk music. And punk was a movement that if you'll forgive me for being crass, basically said that we have three chords and a message. And the message was angst. The message was anger. The message was revolting against the politics at the time, revolting against the idea that you needed to be educated, that you needed to be technically proficient in order to write a song. Punks really just wanted to play hard, they wanted to play fast, they wanted to play loud, and they wanted to yell into a microphone. Singers in punk music don't know how to sing. They just yell whatever comes to them. It's an art form that was birthed out of the idea that you don't need anything in order to make music. Pick up a guitar, play the one three five chord, and then slide that up and down the guitar and yell into the microphone, and you're good to go. 
So eventually that ethos kind of birthed the hardcore movement, which really is just a hardcore version of punk. So they wanted to play louder. They wanted to play faster. They even said, forget about the norms of how you're supposed to write a song. Let's just throw a bunch of parts together, play as loud and as hard as we can, scream as loud as I can, get people going, open up the pit, and this is the music that we love. It made little communities in which people who liked this type of music that was not played on the radio, that was not marketed that was purely homegrown, and if there are any recordings, is generally pretty bad recordings because they weren't trying to market this. And over time, as you'd imagine, the hardcore movement became increasingly violent. Not that there was really a concerted effort from the hardcore movement to go out and commit any acts of crime, just that at shows it was very violent, And the lyrics from this type of music was always talking about, you know, anarchy and bringing down the system. The kids were just fed up with what was going on in popular culture and were railing against it. So with this backdrop of hardcore music comes emo core, emotive hardcore. The first wave of emo core was pretty similar to hardcore. It was still very hard hitting. It was still very loud, except they decided that they wanted to introduce more melody into it. So their singers would actually try and sing instead of yell. Granted, they weren't very good singers because of that punk ethos. But still, we'll, we'll calm it down a little bit, play a little bit of melodies on our guitars, even if they are angular and dissonant. It's not just going to be noise. We're, we're going to try and put a little bit of melody into it. Not only that, but hardcore punk turned inward on itself. Where punk was about heavy music and politics and angst, emo core featured, like I said, more melody and more personal issues and, of course, angst. But the first wave of emo core was still very connected to hardcore music in general. It just happened to deal with more personal problems, saying that the issues of the world were not based on the political systems that are set up. Instead of railing against Reagan and his policies, it was, again, turned inward so that you saw that, hey, the problem is not that Reagan's the president. The problem is that we, the people, elected Reagan. The problem is that I am inherently flawed and I don't know how to fix the problems that I'm going through. So this was the first wave of emo. Now, since then, emo has changed and morphed, and it means a million different things. The second wave of emo came about through a couple bands like Sunny Day Real Estate, who, if you played nowadays to any teenager, they probably would not consider them emo. You know, where are the shimmering melodies? Where is the acoustic guitar? Where are the strings that try and uh, punch me in the gut? And are there any songs they've written about their girlfriends dumping them? Where's the eyeliner? Or wait, was guyliner just a thing when I was in high school? I don't know if they do that anymore. Anyways, Sunny Day Real Estate sounds like this.
So it's less hardcore, more melodic, more technical too. This is the pendulum swinging the other way when punks railed against technicality in their music. Now we're bringing a little bit of that back in there along with melodies, but still staying pretty heavy, pretty close to the roots of hardcore in the screaming, in the dynamics, in the music and things like that. What I'll call the third wave of emo was brought in around the late 90s and the early 2000s, and I think Jimmy Eat World's clarity exemplifies the sound of the third wave of emo. And when I think of emo music, this is the sound of the music that I think of. Now, again, emo can mean a million different things to a million different people, but this is personally what I consider the sound of emo. Because emo doesn't have a specific definition, it really falls anywhere in between the more hardcore roots to the more melody-focused pop music that comes out today. So there's two ways you can take it. With the music, the way the emo works is it's very melodic and it drives you to the lyrics of the song. And lyrically, what emo is, is dealing with personal issues. And oftentimes it's done in such a way that the person writing the song isn't necessarily even looking for an answer to the problems that they have. But it does actually tend to get a little mopey and wallow in self-regret. And that's where emo has gotten its bad rap, I think, from the world at large. And while I think that's definitely a valid point, I don't always want to listen to depressing music. I do also think there's a certain aspect in which when you're going through something difficult and you hear someone else going through difficulty, you get a sense of comfort. There's strength in knowing that someone else is going through a difficult situation as well, that you're not in this alone. And in that sense, it turns what can be very depressing and downcast into something that can actually be uplifting. Now, again, we have to be very careful with this concept, because if it is just like the stereotype and it's just a 16-year-old kid whining about the girl in his science class who won't give him the time of day because he can't put himself out there to talk to her, well, I'm not going to listen to that. I don't care. And even as I say that, I do think there's a certain sense in which I can listen to a song like that and put myself in that person's shoes. And remember that, hey, back in high school, it was pretty difficult. Things were awkward. I was a dumb teenager, and that was one of the most difficult things in my world. So there's definitely a balance. I get why people make fun of emo. That's cool. But I do also tend to gravitate towards these concepts. And the reasons are that when emo is done best lyrically, in my mind, is when you take these small situations, these relatively small things of being frustrated with yourself because you're not the person that you want to be in a specific situation, again, generally talking with girls or something along those lines. But you expand that into the larger scope of life. So I can listen to a song that deals with a certain situation. And instead of putting myself in that situation because I've grown out of that, I can take that concept and apply it to anywhere in life. So the frustration that a kid feels when he's not able to put himself out there 
is a similar frustration that I feel as a dad, not taking the reins of my family and raising my son the way that I know that I should. Or when I see something wrong going on in the world, not standing up and doing something about it. So the value that I find in this music is that you can actually pull out larger concepts for life out of these small situations. Again, I know this is very subjective, and it's you're walking on very thin ice when you do this. A lot of people listen to music for a lot of different things. So if I take the stereotypical metalhead, of course he's going to hate emo because metal is about power, and it's about technicality, and it's about, in a sense, just showing how cool you are. So, of course, when the ethos of something like emo core is finding out how inherently flawed you are and your problems and the issues that you're dealing with, well, of course they're going to think that something like that is mopey. Of course they're going to make fun of the kid who is playing in the corner by himself, wallowing in his regret. And that's okay. I'm not offended. Different strokes for different folks. We'll get to metal music later on. But that does bring up one more point about emo music that really stands out for me. And that's the fact that a hallmark of emo is that it's sincere and that it's unironic. You know, indie rock definitely still plays upon the same types of melodies and shimmering guitar work. They definitely throw in more technicality. But a lot of indie rock brings with it a pretense a sense of irony, where emo music, again, birthed out of punk, is really just heart-on-the-sleeve type of lyricism. And it's very easy to make fun of that and to turn it into something ironic. But there's an earnestness about emo that just tells you, what you see is what you get, man. My lyrics may not be the best, but this is what I'm going through. Now, ultimately, that turns it into a very self-centered type of music. The outlook is very inward. It's a writing style that only sees the bigger issues of life in relation to itself. It's no longer like punk before it, communal and the sense of rising up and doing something en masse. It's personal. And yes, that's what makes it powerful because then it can create a connection with the listener on a personal level. But then the problem also arises because we can't make life all about us all the time. That inherent selfishness, though it can be so powerful, is also a vice. If you're purely self-obsessed in everything that you go through, you're not going to be very much good in this world. So we have to be careful of that when you listen to this type of music. And I'll be blunt with you, this music does appeal to a certain demographic, and that is the kids who are more introspective, and generally kids, because that's how they see the world. The funny thing, though, about EmoCore is that it's actually older than most of its fans. And even today, bands rarely admit to being emo. Except maybe the bands that want to wear that as a label so that they can market a certain type of music to you. And in that case, that kind of defeats the entire purpose. Now, the reason that I'm talking at length 
about emo here, and this is still just a short little diatribe that I'm going on, is because emo is the type of music that I really identified with when I started listening to music. It was my gateway into the world of music. I say that, and of course, my dad brought me up on lots of different kinds of music that I heard in the background, but I didn't start to engage until I found bands that were writing songs about things that I was going through in life, about things that I could connect with. As much as I love Tommy by The Who, when I listened to those songs for the first time back in high school, yeah, they were really cool songs musically, but I didn't connect with it. It took me a while until I became more of a musician and I could start appreciating what they were doing with that album. So in my early days of listening to music, the connection that I found was with the lyrics of certain bands. Now, those bands may not be very good now that I listen to them again, but emo music definitely has its place in my heart and I go back and listen to it all the time. I definitely have different ears when I'm listening to this type of music nowadays. And that goes with just about any genre, but if I hear something that's been done before, it's generally pretty boring. Which again rolls back into this album, is that I think that's what's so special about it, is this was advancing the sound of emo to focus more on the melodies with both the guitar and even the drums, with the bass lines, with the lyrics that led you to try and feel something. And this album really just pioneered that sound. Now, disagree with me all you want, but this was, to me, the first great emo album of emo's third wave. So, have I clarified that for you? Do you know what emo is? Of course you don't. I don't know what it is. There's no specific definition. Again, there's so many different brands of emo that you can listen to a hardcore song and call it emo, or you can listen to a pop song on the radio and the band proclaims that that's emo also. But for all intents and purposes, again, this album encapsulates emo for me. And I say that specifically about the album because I don't think Jimmy Eat World is an emo band. They've since gone on to make more modern pop rock music. So can a band be emo, or can albums be emo, or are they just on a song-by-song basis? Is there really any way to tell? I think I'm really just kind of asking questions without getting clear answers. And, strangely enough, I think that's one of the hallmarks of emo. So, now, on to the record itself. Clarity is the third record by Jimmy World, technically. But even as I touched on how it changed the genre, Jimmy World has changed its sound significantly, even from their second album. Their first album was more DIY, they put it out themselves, but then they got signed to a major label and put out their second album, Static Prevails. This is the one that comes right after that. It was released on February 23rd of 1999. The band consists of Jim Adkins on lead vocals, guitar, and then he also plays piano, keys, does some string arrangements, some background vocals, etc., etc. We've got Rick Birch on bass guitar, we've got Zach Lind on drums, percussion, and a couple other things like bells and chimes, and he also programs some drum tracks. And Tom Linton is on guitars and mostly backing vocals, but he does um, lead on one of the songs in this record. 
which is one of the big changes about this record because on Jimmy Eat World's first album, he was the primary vocalist on their second album. It was split about half and half between Jim and Tom, and now Jim really takes the reins with this album. One thing before we dive into the music is that although Jimmy Eat World is definitely one of my favorite bands of all time, I think they have an absolutely horrid name. Jimmy Eat World. The story goes that when Tom started the band, they didn't know what they wanted to name themselves, and they came home from a practice, and his younger brother, Jimmy, had drawn a picture of himself eating the world or something like that. I've also heard that it may be a reference to a Tiny Toons episode where the Tasmanian devil eats the world, and so Jimmy had seen that and drew a picture of himself doing that. I don't know. Whatever it is, it makes for a terrible band name. (laughs) And much to the chagrin of the now lead singer, Jim Adkins, the name has absolutely nothing to do with him. And on top of that, the initials to the band make the word Jew. So enough about the band, let's jump into the music. Track one, Table for Glasses. So the album opens with a single organ chord resonating. And in come these clean guitars and the drums. Now, the drums, to me, sound pretty raw for a major label release. There's not really any reverb to them, and they're kind of thick. They're not quite as punchy as you usually get. It almost sounds like they're using a room mic for the drums as opposed to close miking them. The vocals, too, they're not as polished and pristine as, say, the last album that we listened to, Churches. But for this song, they don't necessarily need to be. They're in stereo, so you get two different versions of the melody in each ear, one for each ear. And it's interesting because they're not completely in sync with each other. They're a little bit off, so you can tell it's two different performances going on. I think that goes along with the earnestness that I said is inherent in this type of music. What you see is what you get. These are real people singing and real people playing instruments. There's nothing that's faked about it. Now the bass and the strings come in halfway through and they fill out the low end as the song continues to grow. And though this song is pretty slow-tempoed, it layers on lots of different instruments. A glockenspiel, shaker, bells, some more guitars, and eventually there's multiple vocal melodies going on. The song really carries you along and it keeps your attention with the dynamics and the delicate vocal performance. With this song, only Jim is singing. Even though it's doubled, Tom doesn't get any chance to sing. Which I think works really well for this song, because as we'll see when we get to Tom, he does have more of a gravelly voice than Jim. Jim is nice and smooth, and so for the delicateness of the song overall, I think his vocals doubled works really well. 
The song ends and you can tell that the vocals aren't completely in sync with each other. Again, letting you know that this was the vocal take that they wanted. This was him just singing into the microphone and not paying attention to being absolutely perfect. Table for Glasses is a great opener, in my opinion, because you'll know if you're going to enjoy the album right off the bat. The sound of this song is the sound of the album, for the most part. And this is what I was talking about when I said third wave emo. It's still kind of DIY. It's still dry. It doesn't sound like everything's been processed. But there's much more focus placed on the melodies in the song and the lyrics of the song and giving you a certain feeling that leads you to the lyrics that are also delicate. Now, apparently, this song is actually about a girl who used her dress to wipe off dirt off a table at an art show. The unassuming nature of that story just goes to show what emo is all about. It's about making a big deal out of really small circumstances. The introspection of this song over something so simple can feel overblown and kind of navel-gazing, or it can lead you to a place where you remember feeling the same way and how important that is to you and what you've done about it and how it's changed you and how you as a person are formed by your experiences. On the chorus, Jim sings, It happens too fast to make sense of it and make it last. The music and the vocal delivery cause you to think more deeply about what's being said. The strangeness of seeing a girl with dirt on her dress from using it as a wash rag, the awkwardness of witnessing it and not doing anything about it, and the faint connection in seeing something, seeing a part of her that wasn't meant for anyone else to see. He references in the song his skeptic sight. He doesn't understand what she's done, and why she didn't just, you know, use a napkin or something. So he's possibly kind of got a faint sense of repulsion. Like just this, uh, what, what's wrong with her? He's a bit of a skeptic in that regard. But he brings it out a bit more with the lyrics here. Not asking of me anything, saying nothing about what it means, without anybody telling me how I should feel, lead my skeptic sight. He really just doesn't know how to think or how to feel about the situation, but he knows that it shouldn't automatically be negative. He needs someone to lead, to show him the way. Because of the strangeness and the awkwardness of this sight, he really just has questions and not answers. This time it's Track two, Lucky Denver Mint, it opens with a compressed drum sound and some vocals that still are not super polished. This song is pretty cool because it's built off of the basic drum pattern that starts it. You can hear that drum pattern in the background throughout a majority of the song. The vocals pace the song at a somewhat slower tempo, but the guitars really continue to push the song forward. Both there's some high, jangly kind of guitars that you get a lot of the strings. It almost sounds like there's an acoustic guitar somewhere back there. And then there's a thicker, low-end guitar that comes in about halfway through the verses. Along with that drum pattern that's being played, it sounds like there's another drum set that plays over it as well. And there's just a wall of different vocals at the chorus. 
I think Lucky Denver Mint really picks up the pace of the album after the first song. It feels like one of those songs that you just roll down the windows in your car and drive. Throughout the song, they really play around with the drum sound by having each side get some little bits of filtering kind of back and forth at the bridge. And also at the end, they seem to kind of bounce with some delays from the left side to the right side. It's kind of a cool thing to try. I'm not super big on it. I feel like it kind of extends the song artificially, but I totally get that they're having fun with it. They're trying something new in the studio. Now, with this song and with the album in general, I do think that the lyrics are a bit harder to decipher. Like, I have to sit down with them and read them over a few times before I can really kind of understand what he's talking about. But apparently, this song is about a time that he had in Las Vegas, which kind of makes sense of some of the references, like, you're not bigger than this, not better, why can't you learn? And even the title of the song being Lucky Denver Mint. That simple chorus is obviously self-deprecating. You know better than to continue in what you're doing. And of course, in Las Vegas, what you're doing is gambling. On first reading through the lyrics, there was a line that stuck out to me that seemed particularly lazy. It's, I guess it's on my own, minutes from somewhere else. I was thinking, of course you're minutes from somewhere else. Everyone is minutes from somewhere else. Though on second glance, it may be there to emphasize that there's a distance between the characters in the song. The song starts out about gambling, but I think it quickly moves to thoughts about addiction in general and the toll that it takes on more important things in life. There's a line that goes, good things won't let you wait. I'll catch up when we get home. At home, I'll leave. A dollar underwater keeps on dreaming for me. So he's getting pulled in by the allure of something. Um, with this song, I think it's gambling in particular, but it could be anything like fame or success or anything that you're chasing after in life. And he ends up putting off a relationship in order to pursue these other things. That line, at home, I'll leave. A dollar underwater keeps on dreaming for me. It shows that even when reluctantly coming back to this place of home and what I imagine as a relationship, he can't seem to stay there. He's always being called away by these other things. Again, just like the previous song, I think this is a hallmark of emo, it doesn't necessarily give any answers to the problems that he's facing, to the things that he realizes in himself are flawed are wrong that he really just dislikes about himself. But there's a certain catharsis in sharing those things, in sharing that part about you that you know you want to change, and letting the listener know that you're flawed and that the listener is not alone in what they're going through, in seeing yourself and seeing that you're not doing everything right you know that that's the human condition. I think even though it doesn't explicitly tell you to do better, at least in my mind, when I hear things like that, when I get comfort from knowing that I'm not alone, it continues to push me to become better and to become better for someone else. So though these two songs share similar themes, this next song kind of branches out a little bit, and that's track three, Your New Aesthetic. I'll miss you when you're just like them Imitate their water
So this track shows off more of their hardcore and punk roots with that really simple guitar chug through the entirety of the song, actually. It leans more heavily on kind of second wave emo. The vocal performance sounds kind of like snotty to me. It's not perfect. It's kind of like the, yeah, yeah, sentimentality, if that makes any sense at all. I'm bad at describing things. But anyways, there's plenty of different kinds of vocals like popping in and out everywhere. So you kind of get this idea of there's like kind of like gang vocals where there's a bunch of people like joining in with the song. And that dovetails really well into what the song is talking about. And it's kind of like a rallying cry for people. There's some pretty dissonant guitar lines that, that you just heard here that are used to kind of separate the verses. Again, sounding heavier, sounding darker. The song sounds pretty loud overall. And the bass, it really charges forward underneath the simple guitar chugging. So the song sounds pretty thick. I think it's pretty interesting then that the chorus actually starts out with a lot more soft type of vocals, just reminding you that, hey, this this is emo after all. Um, and it kind of showcases the music before he starts yelling into the mic. It's a really simple short song. It's two minutes and 40 seconds, kind of like the older hardcore stuff. Now, both the music, as we've said, and the lyrics kind of reflect that earlier era of the band. The song itself is about the state of music at the end of the 90s, which is kind of funny because of how much it's changed since then, although I guess some things never change. But anyways, it's a call for bands to raise the bar on the music they're writing and not just settle for like a formulaic, watered-down power pop type of music just for a quick buck. There's even a bit of defense of their situation since Jimmy World was signed to a major label right after their first length when he sings, but the politics need means and business never leaves. So there's always a sense in which you have to play the game in order to get somewhere. They're justifying that, yes, they're taking money from major labels, but they're using it to make music like this that pushes the genre forward and, again, like I've said in my case, I think pioneers even new genres. The song gives you the idea that things can get better if people don't settle for less. He sings, Selection breathes on its own. Make them open the request lines and let selection kill the old. At the end of the song, they just come right out with it. They sing, Turn off your radio. Again, this is a rallying cry that we can all make a difference in the music scene if we want to. Track four is Believe in What You Want. Now, personally, I'm not too big on kind of the treble-heavy, distorted guitar syncopation that comes in at the beginning of the song, but for all intents and purposes, they are changing it up from the previous songs on the album, so it flows pretty well. The song has a pretty standard vocal melody for the style. Um, I don't think it's, a again, not a perfect vocal performance. It's kind of a bit on the nasally side. 
They do kind of try and pepper in some different things throughout the song. There's a kind of a, like a synth line on the second verse, which is kind of cool. But overall, I think it's a pretty simple and standard pop punk kind of emo song. If this song, in all honesty, was put out today, I probably wouldn't think twice about it. It wouldn't really stand out. When it comes to songwriting, though, I think there are definitely some really mopey lines like nothing that makes sense ever works out and nothing can be good on its own merits. Now, the sentiment, I think, is a good one. It's kind of like decrying the fact that everything has to have a perfect image in order to become marketable and how PR firms are running people's lives. But I just think he went a bit too far when writing the song and changing this particular circumstance and making it into an absolute using the word nothing multiple times. It sounds kind of whiny. But I think the themes of the song are actually pretty similar to the first song off Dustin Kensrue's album, but this is from a little bit different perspective. It's from the perspective of someone who's tempted to go down the route that the girl went down in that song, I Knew You Before. It sounds to me like the song starts off talking to someone and trying to convince them to make the band's image kind of like a style over substance. The song's a reminder of why the band had started, when he sings, believe in what you want, and put your trust in simple acts, and please keep in sight what makes you care. It's not about the money they offer, it's so much more than that. You're being tempted right now to go against what you believe, but for what? This theme can be expound upon in so many different areas of life, but in this particular song, it sounds like his career path, which is the band. I think you can take the themes and make it as deep as you want it, which is pretty interesting to me overall because the song itself sounds a bit too saccharine for my tastes. Track five is A Sunday. The track opens up with doubled guitars and bass, and it backs a really nice, smooth vocal melody. The instrumentation, I think, is nice and thick after the glockenspiel intro. The song, to me, has that trademark emo sound to it. Melodic and emotive vocals. The guitars are pretty simple during the verses, although they do grow and add a bit of dynamics. On the chorus, we've got organ and a programmed drum track, along with that glockenspiel that comes back in, and some strings, which is a change-up. And verse 2 adds more vocals, it even adds like an auto-tuned vocal part that's kind of buried in the background. I think the vocal performance of this song, again, it's kind of bratty, but it's still emotive. Um, he's got kind of a nasally, kind of scratchy tone to his voice on this song. It sounds like he's been singing for a while, that his voice is kind of giving out on him, which just gives you the feeling that he needs to let these words out, despite the damage that it does to him and his vocal cords. I think the music backs it well along with the vocal performance. The song just feels, again, I'm going to use that word, very emotive, even before you take a look at the lyric booklet. 
the song is very melodic and just carries you through the entire thing. Now, it's called a Sunday, and Sunday automatically brings to my mind church, because that is what goes on on Sundays. But that's not at all what the song is talking about. Sunday here is just an obligatory day for the sake of the story that's being told. It's a fixed moment in time. At the beginning of the song, Sunday is the day where he sings, I'll think it through. On the drive back, I'll think it through. So since he's driving back, we learn that Sunday is the day after kind of the main event of the song happens. He continues to build on this thought throughout the song. He sings, on a Sunday, she'll think it through. So now we know that there's someone else involved and that she also needs to consider the consequences of whatever happened the day before. He sings, now as I drive back, there's 36 less hours I have to change the course I send myself. So the possibility of change seems to grow into a sense of longing as he sings, when the ride's done, the hopes that you've carried, they fall out from your hands back to the ground. And that's the point when we see that the consideration that was given at the beginning of the song, it wasn't a hopeful consideration, but it was the sting of regret. Whatever had happened on Saturday night was a mistake, and it's taken its toll. It causes him to lose hope of what could be, and it causes the other person in the song to also have to consider the damage that's been done. There's a reference to drugs in the song, but whether or not it's a metaphor really isn't the point. As he sings, learn as the drugs leave, learn as you lose it, you will. The haze clears from your eyes on a Sunday. We see that the drugs that the song is talking about cause a haze that lasts into Sunday. The day when the realization of what had happened the night before has forever changed what his tomorrows will be. This is his most unfortunate moment in time. This is his Sunday. And I think that's going to be a good place to stop for this episode because I rambled on about kind of the history of emo and my thoughts on the term and its use. I'm not going to be able to finish up the entire album this time. But you already knew that, didn't you? I mean, that's why this episode is called Part 1. But we'll be back with Part 2 of Clarity next week, and I'll hopefully be able to finish up the entire thing then. We're five tracks in. That gives us eight more tracks to go through. I think we can do it. I think so. As always, if you have any questions or comments or you want to make fun of me for being an emo kid, you can do that. You can contact me. My email is listeningroompodcast at gmail.com. You can leave me a voicemail or text at 617-651-1116. Or you can catch me on Twitter. My handle is at Broccolope. That's B-R-O-C-C-O-L-O-P-E. And if you enjoy what you're listening to, share it with your friends. I don't have very many people listening to this, which is okay. I'm not trying to get famous or anything. This is really just kind of cataloging my thoughts about these records. But I'd love it if you share it with your friends so we can have more of a conversation. You can also leave me a rating and review on iTunes. That'll help get the word out. But even if you don't do that, thank you very much for tuning in, for listening to my rambling. Hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed kind of researching the history of emo and listening to Clarity once again.
Anyways, guys, until next time, remember, don't just hear, listen. Listen.